If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Do you come from a family that has been marked by mental illness? Many of us do. And it's not even the mental illness that breaks us down. It's the silence. The not talking about it, the hiding it, the closed doors when we reach out to the systems that are supposed to help us. Today is gonna be a little different. I'm talking with Meg Kissinger, who grew up in an environment that on the surface seemed like an entirely privileged existence. However, beneath the surface was a loving family doing their best in the 60s while struggling with serious mental illness. Unfortunately, those struggles ended in suicide more than once. In our conversation, we explore the fact that mental illness does not discriminate and that the things that are the most helpful aren't always what you expect. Welcome back to Savvy Psychologist. I'm your host, Dr. Monica Johnson. Every week on this show, I'll help you face life's challenges with evidence-based approaches, a sympathetic ear, and zero judgment. I am so pleased to have Meg Kissinger here today who wrote the memoir, While You Were Out, An Intimate Family Portrait of Mental Illness in an Era of Silence. And I just want to start off, Meg, by asking, why was it so important for you to write this book? Yeah, well, thank you for that question. And thank you for having me on your show. Of course. Fan of the show. So very thrilled to be here. Um, why I wrote the book? Well, I, I feel like I had no choice. I So I'm a, I'm a reporter. I've been a reporter for many years, more than 40, actually. And I always felt that the biggest story was the one that I knew the most intimately, and that was the story of my family. So I spent the last probably 25 years of my career writing about our nation's very troubled mental health system, which I point out in the book is not even really a system at all, because a system is defined as entities that work together and really very little about the care for people with mental illness in this country is coordinated or, or does work together. And my family um, knew that in the most profound and personal way. So I'm the fourth oldest of a big old crazy crew. There were eight kids born in 12 years, two parents who had their own issues with their mental health. My dad we would later come to learn, you know, had bipolar and my mother really struggled with anxiety and depression. 
But when they were married in the in the 1950s and being Catholic, you know, they were very encouraged to have a big family. They wanted a big family. You know, I'm glad that they did have a big family because no one gives me greater joy than my brothers and sisters. But we all struggled, you know, at one time or another with our mental health. And two uh, of my siblings died. So uh, both my sister Nancy uh, and then many years later, 19 years later, my brother Danny died of suicide. That's a pretty dramatic story of origin, and it informed my reporting. And I love journalism, and I'm and I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to have a, a robust career with fantastic editors and colleagues. And I feel like my reporting, I'm, I'm proud of my reporting, and I'm proud of what led as a result of my reporting, which was some some changes in state law and some housing that was built. And I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So my stories were focused there. I'm leading up to a big but here. And the big but <laughs> is that I could only go so far with my journalism. And I think at a certain point, we really need to bear witness to what we live with. And so, and what I lived with was profound mental illness from within my family. And, and growing up as I did in a, in a, as the title says, in an era of silence, in a time when we didn't talk about that. So I felt like kind of the last thing in me, the story that I was really never able to tell through my journalism, I really wanted to get it all out there in the, in the most impactful way that I could. I was, again, fortunate enough to have the opportunity to write this memoir. I, I teach at Columbia University at the journalism school. I teach investigative reporting with the focus on the mental health system. And so I was right there in the pantheon of, you know, excellent journalism. And I had the opportunity too to take a class on how to write a book proposal from the great Samuel Friedman. Anyway, so I had I had motive and I had opportunity. And my motive was simply to bear witness to what a family goes through when there is profound mental illness and really show in a in the most vivid way possible what those consequences are when the systems that are set up to support us actually fail us. And one of the things I very much appreciated was like the honesty and the the lengths that you went to try to be accurate in like portraying this like story. What made that so important? Because I know sometimes we can want to like gloss things up a little bit, you know, sure. particularly yeah. when it relates to us. Absolutely. So I, I twice wrote a story about the mental illness in my family once many years ago, not long after my sister died, and then again about 25 years ago after my brother died. And both of those were really inadequate. I mean, I was still grieving. I hadn't taken the time to fully process it. You know, to, to do this in the, again, the most impactful way, I really felt you had to tell this unvarnished, unblinking account. You, what I needed to do was to get the police records of the days that they died, to get the medical records as best as I could scrape together, to talk to the people around, both within my family and around my family. 
and really tell the story in a full-throated way, in the same kind of way that I do my investigative reporting. Mm -hmm. So that was very important to me, but also very tricky because these are painful, painful, painful memories. And so to ask my brothers and sisters who survive, and there are still six of us, how do you feel about me going back and revisiting and telling that story in this very, again, unblinking way? And, you know, bless their hearts, they, to a person, said, sure. You know, I think we're all of a certain age now. We're getting up there. Uh, we've had a lot of time to process this and and they're very compa they're compassionate good people and they just felt as i do that if we're going to if we can help people by telling our story they they were all in but i i was over the years i thought about how to tell the story so many times because you know the temptation is to write a fictional account and give everybody Slightly, I, I remember I, one time I tried to write something as a fiction, and, and so my sister Patty became Patsy, and I, instead of being Meg, was Maggie. So I wasn't really fudging it too much, but it just didn't feel right to me. It didn't feel right to me to try to get to the brutal honesty in, in, by writing a fiction. I, I really, it was important to me to have this be a nonfiction, to be the truth and to be grounded in facts and to, to, to really explore this in a way that I would, as I said, an, uh, a story that I would be writing for my newspaper. And, you know, one of the things that I so appreciated about, like, the effort that you put into this is that like, you know, I am not from this generation, but my mom is like from this generation. She was a child who grew up, you know, through the fifties, through the seventies were her formative years. And what I appreciate about it is even though, you know, you and I have different like backgrounds, my mother grew up in the deep South, went through segregation, desegregation, but also grew up during that period of time where like, you know, she had on paper, like the typical family two parent home. She was one of seven children. And, you know, what I enjoyed about the story is like, there's so much like kind of overlap in that, like, you know, we have the two parents, we have the like family unit, we have the religion. I grew up, you know, being Southern Baptist. And that was a strong part of the upbringing too. But to your point about like the era of silence of that, like, yes, we have all these things and people are struggling in ways that we aren't talking about, you know, and they're not reaching out to the system. And if they are reaching out to the system <laughs> that like you, as you're saying, like it's broken, there's so many barriers for people that like really make it hard. And, you know, I appreciated, you know, even though there are so many differences, I could see the commonalities in these stories. And it's something that I'm often trying to educate all my patients about is that you can be from any background and you will still suffer in these ways. There's a, there's a reason why mental health is so common and that Suicide is the 11th leading cause of death in the U.S. currently, you know, and I, and I know sometimes people have confusion. They'll say, well, I come from a good family. Why am I struggling, <laughs> you know, in these ways? And it's like, it's not about that. 
Right. No, I appreciate that so much, Monica. Thank you. And and I did. I was. I had that in mind as I was writing this. Is like this is unique to my generation in that you know again that era of silence, like your generation and beyond. You know, I'm so thrilled to see people more open about talking about their mental health and their struggles. Um, I, and I, I love that um, the students that I teach who are, you know, in their twenties, I teach in the graduate school. So they're, they're usually between the ages of like 23 and 30. Um, but I love that they are so much more open and willing to talk about that. Um, so I, I worried a little bit as I was writing this. I'm like, oh, is anybody going to understand what those days were like? But a part of my motivation, too, was uh, really, again, to just to bear witness to this is what we did live with in that time. And I know as a, as a white woman living in, this, in, a, in privilege, I mean, we, we had, well, we ended up with zero money, but from our growing up time, we had a lot of privilege. And I know that not everybody in, enjoyed that, but I think that makes kind of the fact that we suffered so much Regardless, to your point, that that mental illness doesn't know a demographic, it doesn't know race or color or income level, uh, it finds you, the, however it finds you. I really feel, even though there is so much more openness these days, thankfully, uh, there's still a great discrimination against people with mental illness. And I You'll notice I'm not using the word stigma, and stigma is a word that gets thrown around a lot. And I've thought about this so much. And uh, you know, the great Tom Insel, who was the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, who wrote an, a, a beautiful uh, book that came out last year about his time as the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, goes into this a little bit, and he talks about why how he uses instead of stigma he uses the word discrimination. And I like that. And here's why. Because I think stigma, when you talk about stigma, which is from the word stigmata, which is the, the marking of somebody in the old days, they believed uh, that if you had this marking on you, you were full of sin. And, and that really puts the onus on the person who's suffering from mental illness. Whereas discrimination when you when you talk about discrimination against people with mental illness, it really it really puts the the spotlight on the person who's doing the injury, who's who's considering the person with mental illness being different and denying them the same privileges that you would deny somebody else. So I anyway, that's just a little little uh, semantics there, but I, I think it goes to really the spirit of how. I feel we need to look at people who are suffering. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the more we can think about people with mental illness in the same way that we do cancer or heart disease or diabetes, then there's the compassion, you know, then there's the, the, the willingness to, to want to help and, and not to cast blame. It's not a, it's not a character flaw to have depression or you know you're not you're not a bad person uh if you have bipolar or schizophrenia this is part of who you are it's part of how you were made and i think we need to really i think i know uh we need to just start looking at people in that 
more compassionate and, and fuller way. Absolutely. And so that leads me into another question, which is, you know, for you as going through this journey with your, your own family, what have you learned in terms of supporting people who may have mental illness? Yeah. Thank you for that great question. I, what, what I learned is just that we need to love one another. I know that sounds so squishy, but it's really very true. So I have a brother named Jake. So he, Jake is the oldest brother in the family. He's the third in line, but anyway, and Jake struggles with his, he's got very serious anxiety and depression. He actually lives in a group home. He's, he's really, his, his illness is such that he really can't or doesn't want to live alone. He wants to be in a congregate living situation. Um, and he's so open about his challenges and his frustrations. And, and he's, he's a very willing patient. He's a very open, uh, individual. And I've just, I've learned so much from watching him and how he asks for help, which is something that a lot of people do need work on myself included, um, to just know, to have the humility and the, to ask for help. And, and, um, I think that's a great gift. That's a great lesson I learned from him. Net credit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Applications subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Hey, Fidelity. Can I get a second opinion on stocks in the Fidelity app? With Fidelity, it's easy to get an outside opinion from independent experts in a single score. And then? When you're ready, trade U.S. stocks and ETFs with no commissions. That's right. I am always right. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity account. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at Fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. And I love what you say about the like love piece, because when I hear you say that, what I'm hearing too is like an openness to listen to the person that you love, that you're there to support, you know? And, and with that, it, it sounds like there's an acceptance too. It's not that I'm trying to change my family member or change their circumstances or, or whatever it is. I'm there with them, listening to what's going on, listening to what they might be asking for, or if they're not in a place where they can ask, I'm trying to educate myself, get more information to like be able to support them and even figuring out <laughs> what their needs might be in a situation. Totally. So the week before my brother Danny died, he sent me a letter. And in the letter, he talked about his mental illness. Now, this is a guy who never admitted all the years that he was suffering from bipolar, would never acknowledge that he had mental illness. He was a guy who strongly railed against any kind of label 
and was not accepting of treatment. But he finally came to realize that he was brought to his knees by this illness. And he reached out to me in a letter. And in the letter, which turned out to be a suicide note, I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but he talked about how, um, in his words, only love and understanding can conquer this disease is what he said. And so I've, I've thought about that so much. And in fact, I dedicate the book to my brother, Danny, and because he wanted us to understand. But I like that combination of loving and understanding. If you love someone, you're going to try and understand them. And conversely, I think if we understand somebody, we're probably going to love them. So, and if we love them, we're not going to let them suffer by themselves and we're going to, we're going to be there for them and we're going to walk with them on this very hard road that they are on and be there for one another. So yeah, again, it sounds a little woo woo, but, um, (laughs) uh, that's it. I mean, that's, that's what I've learned the most from this. Yeah. Well, and the thing, even though you're saying it sounds woo-woo, what I appreciate about this is that I think sometimes when people are thinking about how to support people, it feels complicated. So we get scared and then we like run away, you know? And oftentimes when I'm talking to people about like how to support, I'm like, sometimes support is just like sitting next to a person in silence who's sad, you know, and just like letting them know I'm present like with you right now. You know, oh, you're and that's scared huge. to go to that appointment. I'll give you a ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is huge. Just to sit and to be with somebody, just to hold their hand or sit next to them, just let them let them have their say. And that's that is a powerful witness to to your love for them and makes them feel validated. Helps for me. I mean, if I'm having a bad hair day and somebody is boosting me up. I, I count on my, my friends and my family to do that. And um, I think more of that, the better. Oh yeah. Anytime you can develop a relationship where, you know, you have the sense that you can just be whatever you are in that moment and you don't have to perform or have to get like dressed up in some way, whether that's literally or metaphorically, it makes a big difference, particularly with dealing with mental illness, which often puts us in states where like, this is not how I want to like represent myself to another person or to the world. And so So having people who you trust that can see you in those moments can go a long way in getting through the darkness of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Beautifully said. And so I think one of the final questions that I have for you is we've talked about like how you've gone about supporting, you know, or what you've learned about in terms of supporting people with mental illness. But for you as a person who has been witness to these things, has, you know, has been on this journey yourself as well, how have you learned to take care of yourself and yeah, like make great. sense Ooh. of these things? Yeah, great question. Some days better than others, you know. So um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm lucky. I've got a I've got a wonderful family, you know, including my brothers and sisters. We are always joking around with each other. As I say, towards the end of the book, I talk about how we've got this ridiculous family 
text chain and it really gets out of control. We, we, we get very silly on it. So we hold each other up in that way. You know, I'm lucky that I have, um, you know, a husband who's a great cook. My kids are loving and funny. I, I meditate. I do yoga. I pray. I jump in Lake Michigan any chance I can get. <laughs> um, you know, I like I like getting lost in a good baseball game. So I've got my little stress release uh, ways to get through the day joyfully. Uh, but it's you know you got to work at it, and mm-hmm. um, I just encourage everybody to kind of find out what gives them joy. Even a simple, just taking the deep breaths every once in a while. I don't do that enough. My youngest sister, Molly, who's a yoga instructor, is always saying to me, breathe, breathe. <laughs> so um, I have to remind myself just 10 seconds in, hold it, and 10 seconds out. That's your own little like well, mental health cleanse. Yeah. And what again, what I appreciate about this and something that I'm always talking to people about is so much of life comes back to the fundamentals, you know, in the world that we're in right now, we're always looking for a hack or like what's the new or the next like innovation of something. But when I talk to people like yourself, it's always coming back to the fundamentals. It's coming back to the breath. It's exercise. It's humor, you know, our support system. If we're religious, it's prayer. If we're spiritual, it's our yoga and our meditation and like whatever it is. It always kind of seems to come back to these fundamentals. Right. Yeah. I need all of the above, by the way. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. yeah, just yeah, it sounds so simplistic, uh, but I do, I do, I think it's a, I think you have to work at it. it. It doesn't come naturally to everybody. I feel very grateful for a lot of the gifts I have, the gift of my faith and the gift of energy and, and good health. Uh, and so I don't mean to be so cavalier, like just walk out into the sunshine. I know it's not that simple for a lot of people, but I guess one of the, my favorite pieces of advice comes from the late, great Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers fame, you know, to look for the helpers. And that's what I do a lot. I look for people who help me and we all need help. So, and, and as I said, I've, what I've learned from my brother, Jake is let's not be too proud to ask for it. Oh, absolutely. Reaching out for help and everyone needs it. And to your point too, it's not simple. It's that day to day, these small things that we're doing every day that add up to our, this accumulation of what it is that we actually do need in life. You know, it's not the one walk that you went in, went on. It was like, the thousand mm-hmm. walks that you went on, you know, and just like with any like relationship, it's not like the one time I talk to you, it's each time I talk to you and it builds on itself and it enriches that like relationship. So I wanted to say thank you across the board. Thank you for being here in this interview, but also thank you for like going on this journey and coming to a place where like you could be so open and and honest. I know you kind of like dismissed it and like, oh, like me and my family, we're older now. We said we want to do this thing, but like, (laughs) it's not hard at any stage of life to like, to be really vulnerable and open and honest. And I appreciate that you all understood the potential power of that vulnerability and like leaned into it anyway. 
Yeah, thank you so much for that. It, it's yeah, it's it, it's we are definitely laying ourselves bare, but I think I think that's how the healing comes. So, for anyone who is interested in your book, like when is it out? Like, sure. how can they go about getting their hands on it? Yeah, thank you. So it it's uh, coming out September fifth. Uh, it's available on Amazon, of course, uh, independent bookstores. We love independent bookstores um, and Barnes and Noble. Just Google while you're out by Meg Kissinger and you find a lot of ways to access it. It's also available as an audiobook or a Kindle, all of, the, all of the above. What has your experience been like talking openly about mental illness in your family or with navigating the mental health system? Are there any tips you've learned that you want to pass on? Let me know on Instagram at KindMindPsych. You can also reach out to me via my email at psychologist at quickanddirtytips.com or leave a voicemail at 929-256-2191. The Savvy Psychologist is a Quick and Dirty Tips podcast. It's audio engineered by Steve Rickyberg with script editing by Adam Cecil. Our podcast and advertising operations specialist is Morgan Christensen. Our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings. And our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. Follow Savvy Psychologist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's all for this episode of Savvy Psychologist. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. How about Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries with breakfast? Whoa, Dad, we're on Crunch Island. <gasps> it's Jean Foot. <laughs> and he stole our crunch. Quick, the zip line. He's getting away. Throw our last Crunch Berry. No! No one steals my Crunch Berries. I think you mean my Crunch Berries. Choose your own Crunch Venture with Captain Crunch. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.